Father in heaven, I ask that you would use uh, me in the preaching of your word to communicate to your people this morning what they need to hear from you and what I need to hear from you. I pray, Father, that you would give us um, attentiveness to your word and to the spirits moving within our hearts and our minds as we hear your word preached. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for all the blessings of this life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this sermon, which is the second in our sermon series, going through the entire uh, book of Philippians over the next several weeks, with this. Whose life is it anyway? Whose life is it anyway? When you think about your life, when you think about the choices that you make in this life, your family, your friends, um, your virtues, your sins, when you think of your life, do you think of it primarily in terms of yourself? that you own all the rights to your life here and now? Or do you see your life as being not your own, but primarily that of Christ's? Whose life is it anyway? We oftentimes think about our existence in terms primarily of our own desires, what we want to seek in this world, what we've been gifted with, and I want to say that, um, that Christianity has gotten a bad rap. You usually get, the truth sometimes gets bad raps here and there. We get a bad rap for saying that, you know, you are Christ and therefore that means to follow him means that you shouldn't have a personality or desires or, um, uh, or even your own kind of characteristics given from the Lord. No, 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 you're, we're supposed to be kind of cookie-cutter Christians all looking the exact same. Have you heard something like that before? We'll just, we all should look exactly the same, and there's kind of this um, great reduction to the common, common, uh, lowest common denominator. I'm here to say that's actually not the truth about what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ is simply a perspective. Oh, it's a reality first, but it's also a perspective in this life to say that fundamentally, my life is not my own. It's the Lord's. And because of what has been done for us, then we are given freedom. We're given freedom when we say, my life is not my own, but it's Christ's. And we see that freedom played out here with St. Paul. St. Paul in our section, this is chapter 1, 12 through 30. If you have a Bible, you can open to that page there, 980, as we look through this text. Paul is going to um, alert us and alert his readers in Philippi to a way of seeing his own life that is really liberating, that, that you and I as believers ought to buy into, that our life is not our own, that it's actually Christ's. And with that comes a freedom to be ourselves in the Lord, to not fear death, and thus be able to live in the midst of a world in such a way that others will be brought into the kingdom of God. 
If we were to break up this section of Paul's letter, um, we could break it up really into three sections. The first is verses 12 through 18, where Paul gives an update on what's going on in his life. He's currently in prison writing this, and he's going to give a bit of an update. There's a lot there. We're going to unpack some of that. The next section is uh, the end of verse 18 through verse 26, where Paul gives really an existential testimony about how he sees his own life, the freedom therein. And then finally, he's going to end this section in his letter with a charge to the Philippian Christians, and I think it's a charge to you and to me this morning, no matter where we're at in life. So let me begin here. Verse 12. You can follow along if you'd like or just listen. Paul writes these words, inspired, these inspired words. He says, I want you to know, brothers, this is the brothers, the the Christians in Philippi, I want you to know that what has happened to me, that is, his imprisonment, has served to advance the gospel. I'm going to stop there. There's, um, There's some belief here that the church at Philippi that has received this letter from Paul, who's in Rome, most likely imprisoned there, They're concerned that, look, if our holy apostle Paul is in prison, then the ship's sinking. If he's in prison, this whole resurrected Messiah, the whole spread of the gospel, all this is going to be sinking because he's in prison. What are we going to do? And Paul's going to go on to say that, look, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. My suffering is an icon of Christ's suffering and my persevering in the midst of it is actually, is, that's going to be the, the case and point of why the gospel will advance. He goes on verse 13 to say, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, that word there, and I, I hate to do the whole Greek thing up here from the pulpit, but that word there is really important. It's praetorium. It's got a few different meanings, one of which is the emperor's elite forces, his elite troops. Within that guard in Rome, the gospel is being spread. They're starting to hear about what Paul is preaching, and they're starting to believe. Why? Because of Paul's suffering. You see, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, the church is not squashed. The church actually grows. The church grows. And here's why. Let me give you an athletic example. I think they're, they're, well, they're not the best, but they at least ring true with me. If you don't like athletics, you can just plug your ears for a moment, and, and I'll, t- I'll give you the sign when you can unplug. But here it is. If you want to be good at something, specifically an athletic event, you're to do what? You're to train your body. For a while, I was uh, working out with Antonio Carballo, who is just, he's a machine. He's, ma- he's man's man. He's a workout man. So working out with him, the time, and Antonio, I promise, the time just hasn't added. I'm not able to do it in the afternoons anymore. I'm not just, you know, you know leaving for other reasons. I'm, I'm leaving because I can't. But when you work out, you're breaking down muscle. You're suffering so that it'll be built up. So that it'll be built up. We see here that Paul is saying, in my imprisonment, in my suffering, as I proclaim the truth, the imperial guard even is hearing the news, the good news of our Lord. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, that is other Christians, have become confident, Paul says here, in the Lord by my imprisonment. They become confident by my imprisonment and are so much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Beloved, when you speak the truth of God, the truth of the Scriptures, to other people, and you suffer for it, what is happening is that others are watching, and other Christians are being more emboldened to speak the truth. I mean, how many of you all have been in a business setting, for instance, where you finally drew the line and you said, I can't do any more. I'm not going to do any more. And in your drawing the line, the other people that might have been quiet and kind of watching what's going on, they, they get confidence in the truth and in you. And maybe you got canned for that. But even in your canning, people are seeing the truth and they're being made confident to speak the gospel, to speak the truth. Paul goes on here in verses 15 through 18 to give the kind of final update to the Philippian church in terms of his uh, imprisonment. He says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. That is, there are people that are preaching, both in Rome and in Philippi, preaching the gospel, but some do it from envy and rivalry. Others, Paul says, from goodwill. The latter do it out of, out of love. That is, the ones who do it from goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, the people that proclaim Jesus out of envy, out of rivalry, those people, they do it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, Paul hasn't taken personal these other preachers out there that are preaching from selfish ambition, that are preaching out of a sense of rivalry, these super apostles that are envious even of Paul's calling. He's saying, look, I'm not taking it personally. If they're preaching the Christ crucified and resurrected, they can do it. They can do it. As a matter of fact, I can rejoice in their proclamation because it's not about me. This isn't my life. It's about the spreading of the good news. And when that happens, Paul himself can rejoice and we can rejoice. At clergy retreats, we often sit around and uh, we, we stand up to. We often sit around and, uh, and chat. And sometimes that can chat... That, that chatter can turn into, oh, look at, you know, maybe so-and-so over there or some preacher over here who's preaching out envy and rivalry and God forbid that they would continue preaching and this, that, and the other. And while we must protect the theology of the church, hear me clearly, we must protect the theology of the church, those that are preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead for the salvation of the sins, if they're doing it from envy or rivalry or selfish ambition, were to critique their motives, but not their content, because at the end of the day, we can rejoice that the gospel is going forth in some way in this world. But Paul concludes this section as an update, and now he moves into his personal testimony. And here's where I want you to really listen, to really um, see what Paul is getting at, because I think this has practical application to our, li uh, to our lives and to this question of whose life is it anyway. The end of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, the prayers of the churches in Philippi, and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this all will turn out for my deliverance. What he means by deliverance there could mean that he gets to be freed from this prison in Rome. It could mean, too, we'll see that he's delivered through death. We don't know. 
But he says it's going to turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do we ask that question of ourselves? Is Christ being honored in our bodies, with our words, in our deeds? Paul says that he has full courage. It was G.K. Chesterton that said that the virtue that's lacking in the Western church more than any other is the virtue of courage to speak the truth in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Paul has that courage, but he also says that whether by life or death, Christ will be honored in my body. Is that the question that we have for ourselves? Is Christ being honored in us? Because the point of the matter is, it's not our body completely, not our minds and hearts completely. We are created in the image of God to give glory to God. It's now no longer Christ who lives in me. Um, it's Christ who lives in me. For the old self, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul goes on to say, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That powerful um, uh, phrase that we've so often heard. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One theologian writes this of that important phrase. He says, um, here's what this means, this phrase. It means that Christ is most magnified in us when we are more satisfied in him than um, fearful of death or happy about the things we can get in this life. Christ is most magnified in us when we are more satisfied in Him than what will happen to us in death or what we might have in this life. What does that mean? That means that we see our lives as not primarily our own, but hidden with Christ in God. And then to, of course, die is gain. The church has forsaken too often a proper eschatology, that there is a new heaven and a new earth and a heaven to come. We're often quite silent on this fact. But brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is that we can freely live in this world with courage, speaking the truth of the gospel in our workplaces to our family at all moments in time because heaven is real. It is real that death is not the end of us. And because of that fact, we're free to live in this life. Free to say, my life is no longer my own, it's Christ's, and I'm, and I'm going to be freed to follow him. Paul goes on to say in this section of personal testimony, he goes on to say that I'm hard-pressed between the two. That is, uh, to stay here in this life, which he says is fruitful labor for me, or to go on to die and to be with Christ. He said, I'm hard-pressed between these two ends, these two poles. For my desire is to depart to be with Christ. For that is far better. But here we see the heart of an apostle and what I think ought to be the heart of each Christian. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh here on this earth is more necessary for your account. How many of you all have a loved one or a friend or even an acquaintance 
that, that you feel like, yes, Lord, if you were to take me at this moment in time, I would be happy to be with you in the communion of saints. But I feel an obligation to stay in this world for the salvation of someone else. Have you, have you ever felt that? That means that you don't see your life as primarily your own. You see it as to be used for Christ and his kingdom. And again, this isn't, this isn't poo-pooing your personalities and your giftings in the Spirit. No, it's saying that all those were given to you and to me to be lived out for the kingdom. I mean, Paul says it. Look, Philippian church, I'd rather die in prison and be with the Lord. I love you, but I'd rather die. I'm going to say it, you know, frankly here. But for your sake, for your sake, I'm going to continue in this life. And that means more fruitful labor for me because continuing this life is going to allow for, as he says it here in verse 25, your progress and joy in the faith. There are some relationships that you all have, each of you individually, with other people on this earth that the Holy Spirit has set up. And you are to live as Christ on their behalf and for that other person so that they may progress in the faith and have joy in the faith. That's your calling. That's why God has has put you in that relationship just as he put the Apostle Paul in relationship to the church at Philippi. For Paul is not saying that his life is his own. Go do whatever you want to do. I'm ready just to die and go be with Christ. He says, no, no, no. That's better. But whose life is it anyway? My life is not my own. Finally, he gives a charge, and I'll close with this. Look at verse 27. Christ gives a charge now to the Philippian church and to us. So if you don't hear anything else, hear this charge this morning. And hear this as if St. Paul is, is saying this to each of us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. When I read this charge, I think of it individually to each of us, that the way that we live our life ought to be worthy of the gospel. And and what does it mean to have a life worthy of the gospel? A life worthy of the gospel bears the fruits of the Spirit. It's living for, as we talked about in Sunday school, the neighbors in this life whom God has allowed us to interact with, giving our lives for their sake, that they may have the truth of the gospel and find it. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. But beloved, a church, an ethos of a church, that is our local church here at Christ the King, ought to receive these words as a corporate body, as a worshiping body, that we might stand firm in one spirit, not divided, with one mind striving, each of you, side by side with one another and with the clergy, for faith, for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, um, one thing that happens from the pulpit, I think, too often is we just, we hit these kind of almost political points and we just kind of speak about them, we move on. But have any of you really felt a bit frightened to speak the truth about the triune God and his ordering of creation and the gospel message in your workplace, with your friends, at moments in time? Have you, has anyone else ever actually felt that on the ground? 
Okay, a few of you. Yes, most of you, in fact. Yes, you have felt that. We are called, as a church family here, to be called um, firm in one spirit, to have with one mind this striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. You know that when you share your testimony of God's work in your life, you are equipping and giving encouragement and hope to other believers, as Paul is doing here for the church in Philippi. And finally, Paul goes on to say this, all of this is a clear sign to them, of, that is to your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You see, um, when we speak the truth to our opponents, to those who are the sitting in the seats of the scoffers, as Psalm 1 puts it, scoffing at God, when we speak truth and love to them about the gospel, and they oppose us, but they see us doing it with courage and in unity with one another, they actually begin to see that this is a sign that they're wrong, a sign of their destruction. For if Christians always cower down at every sign of suffering, then our opponents look at us and they say, do you even believe what you really preach? Do you believe it? And this is where the household of faith, encouraging one another, equips one another to stand firm. In verse 29, one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture, Paul says to his church in, in Philippi, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There's a twofold gifting by God to his people. The gift of faith, the gift to believe that Christ died for the sins of the world, has risen from the dead, will come again to judge the living and the dead. That ability to have faith is a gift. But Paul says, too, that suffering is a gift when we suffer for the sake of Jesus in this world. It's a gift that I think shows each of us individually that when we endure the suffering, our faith is real, that we're not pretending, that our faith is real. It gives us courage as well. But also when we share the news of that suffering and our endurance of it with others, God builds up His church to do what? To finally say that the answer to this question, whose life is it anyway? What's Christ's life in us? A life that when it is shared properly with the world, its beauty, its truth, and its goodness by the power of the Holy Spirit are almost irresistible to those who see it so that they might come into the kingdom of God. Beloved, would that we see our lives are hidden with Christ on high, that it is Christ who lives in us and not we in ourselves. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.